This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. There's a new report out uh, this morning talking about child care and a plan for that right across the country. The C.D. Howe Institute has released this report, and essentially they're cautioning the federal government against adopting a national child care plan. Remember, expanding child care has been identified as a critical component of pandemic recovery to help get women back in the workforce because they have suffered disproportionately in job losses. But how it should be done? Well, apparently that's a different conversation. So for more on all of this, let's talk to one of the authors of the report. It's Jennifer Robson, Associate Professor of Political Management at Carleton University. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Good morning. So can you give me an idea of what you examined in this report? Yeah, so look, um, I think your intro said it really well that women, uh, particularly women in lower wage positions who are also mothers, have really taken the brunt of the employment losses in this last year due to COVID. Um, And we are, in this report, calling for what we think is a feasible plan, having federal and provincial governments working in their respective areas of jurisdiction so that we can expand quickly expand access to affordable quality childcare across the country. And what we talk about in the report is, look, there's, there's no silver bullet here. We need all governments, we need all hands on deck cooperating, but we need to figure out a plan that's feasible because we're in a federation here, right? Mm-hmm. Childcare is an area of provincial jurisdiction. So uh, we need a, a plan that actually makes sense for Canada. That's that's where we come down in the report. Where do we start? Where do we start to do that? Yeah, so there, I think, look, in terms of what the federal government could do, maybe I can start there because yeah. we're all still waiting later this month for a federal budget. So um, the federal government could move immediately to um, reform the tax, the major sort of tax support that it gives to families who have daycare expenses or child care expenses. That's the child care expenses deduction. This has been on the books since 1972. Um, it's outdated. Um, it is based on a really outdated model of how families work and what they need. Um, it provides the most benefit to high-income families who can already afford the highest daycare fees. So we're echoing um, a previous report that was also published by the C.D. Howe Institute to say, replace this with a credit that would be a cash transfer to parents that gets cash in hand at the time that they're having the daycare expense as opposed to after tax, after you've already paid out of pocket and now you're saving a little bit on your tax return. We also want to see the federal government make a significant increase in its transfers to provinces for early learning and child care. For the last couple of years, they've been spending, it's about $400 million a year under those existing bilateral agreements, plus another $250 million that nobody ever sees because it's hidden away in a bigger lump sum transfer. And what we want to do, or what we say they should do, is pull those pieces together and effectively double it. Now, in the fall economic statement, the federal government said that they were going to introduce um, permanent funding at a higher level, but not until 2028. And you know what? Families just can't wait that long. Right. I wonder, though, like trying to get everybody on board, it, that, that seems like that would take a long time, too. Well, by everybody on board, I think you're referring to this idea of, of national standards. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like trying to get every and province to do the same, something similar, seems to me that would take forever. It, it, would, it would be really difficult. And to be perfectly honest, I think 
you know, look, we've just come through a major court decision around um, carbon pricing, right? And that was an area where the the federal and provincial governments, some provincial governments have been in disagreement over whether or not a federal backstop ought to apply. And I think if you read that court judgment really carefully, it's pretty clear there's a really high bar for being able to invoke a national interest case for imposing national standards in an area of provincial jurisdiction. And childcare, I, I don't think anybody disputes this, childcare is an area of provincial jurisdiction. If we see this as being fundamentally, you know, part of the K-12 public education system, look, we don't have national standards for that either, right? And there are existing variations across provinces. There are some commonalities too, but those, um, those differences are not necessarily bad, right? The federal government can do a good job of convening, of information sharing, of supporting research, of even uh, doing some direct support to providers to make it, uh, you know, easier, for example, to uh, get uh, staff uh, trained uh, so that we improve qualifications, we improve skill levels, because that's a really important way to improve quality. Like the federal government has tools that they could use. But if we make all of this funding conditional on a set of national standards, I really do have concerns about the viability of that path forward. Do you think the will is there to do things this way, to have that kind of system? The will. (laughs) In politics, that's what it's all about, right? The will. Well, you got to, I mean, like, will gets us so far, but you also have to have, frankly, you have to have, like, the legal authority. You've got to have a plan that you can actually implement, right? So I think, um, look, I think that there are some hopeful signs of interest in enhancing early learning and care at the provincial level in different ways. I think that there's also clear signals from the federal government that they want to do more to support early learning and care. And I think that together is really promising. But again, we got to do this in a way that we're respecting the jurisdictions of the various governments that we have in Canada. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. That's Jennifer Robson, Associate Professor of Political Management at Carleton University, talking about this report out today from the C.D. Howe Institute. And they're essentially cautioning the federal government against adopting a national child care plan without making sure that it is done in a very cooperative way with all of the provinces involved, essentially setting national standards. But if you do that, won't that mean that some provinces just won't make it happen and then we'd be kind of back to where we are before? This is Mornings with Simi. Now, you may have seen overnight the story regarding this big party that happened up at a restaurant in Big White where it was crazy. People jam-packed, dancing on tables, having a good partying like it was 1999. I made that joke yesterday and clearly my kids were too young to understand what it was that I was saying. But yeah, huge party going on there. And they one of the excuses from the restaurant was, oh, they had to use up all the food because of the new rules that were coming in. So they invited you know staff to come in and, and do that. And that's what happened. So clearly a lot of restaurants must be facing that. They didn't all have a huge party like that and break the COVID rules to get rid of it. Plus, there's way better ways to deal with all that perishable food that they might have to deal with right now. So our next guest comes into the picture. It's Tristan Jagger, founder of an organization called Food Runners. Tristan, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me again. Now tell me once again, what is your organization all about? 
So um, the organization is called Vancouver Food Runners. And what we do is we match access food from restaurants and different kinds of food suppliers to charities in Vancouver that need food. And we have about... Sorry. I was going to say, have you been getting some calls in the last couple of days? Yes, yes, we have. It's sort of deja vu all over again. So um, with the new restrictions in place, um, restaurants obviously have a lot more access food available. So we are sending our volunteers to pick it up and taking it to different charities that need it. Okay, so what? So uh, there must be a lot of charities that kind of depend on the food that you bring them to. Yes, absolutely. So right now we have about 74 charity partners. Um, every, um, so many of them are in need. When the pandemic started, it was about one in nine families kind of in food insecurity in Vancouver. And now it's about one in seven. So you can imagine how much the need has grown. Right. That's, I guess, I know it's very hard for restaurants right now. Uh, this Mm -hmm. is the kind of one way that I guess they can do some good, right? With the food, the situation that they have been dealt. Um, what kind of food do you pick up? Um, We can pick up any kind of food, actually. So what we, um, it can be perishable, it can be fresh produce, meat, dairy. That's really, really what community partners are in need of right now, are meat and dairy and um, vegetables and fruit, um, that kind of thing. We can, we have a thousand volunteers that can uh, get to your restaurant and pick it up within a few hours. Just you have a thousand volunteers? Yes, we have a thousand volunteers since the last time I talked to you. What? Yes, I know. It's amazing. So we post a food run, which we call them on our app, Vancouver Food Runners app. And usually um, a food run is claimed within about three minutes. You know, last time we talked to you, you were looking for people, right, to to do this. And so you're telling me that now, that was, I felt like that was only like a couple of months ago, too, that we talked to you. It's, yeah, it's it's amazing. Really, Vancouver community has really stepped up um, to try and get, you know, food to people that need it. And um, we've collected over 350,000 pounds of food in the last uh, 12 months. That is amazing. Did you ever think that a year later, this would still be like you would still be doing this? And now, you know, it has taken up so much of your time. Yeah, I, I would have never thought, you know, when the new restrictions came into place, it was sort of like deja vu of last. But, um, you know, I will say, like, the restaurants have been absolutely amazing from when they shut down last year, you know, giving us all their access food and then continue to be partners throughout the year, um, you know, making extra meals and things like that. And then even to to this day where they get shut down again um, for in-room dining, they are still calling us and they're in a hard time and they're still looking to help, you know, the Vancouver community. So I will really say, like, we have 165 food suppliers. Many, many of them are restaurants. And they have been exceptional in thinking of others in this time. Oh, I do. You know, I think everybody needs some of the good news sometimes. And this mm-hmm. is definitely one of those stories. Uh, for people who do help out and sign up for your app to be one of the volunteers, can you explain yeah. what that involves? Because it, it really is just you can fit it into your schedule anytime, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, you would just download the Vancouver Food Runners app on your phone. And uh, you can check what food rescues are available. You just claim them. You can do this weekly. You can be a food runner um, every Thursday at a certain time, or you can just take it whenever it fits into your schedule. Um, and there really isn't much more than that. You just have to uh, set aside a few, few, maybe half an hour to an hour of your day 
um, and you pick up the food at the food supplier and drive it directly to the charity. It's very COVID safe where we um, take the food from outside the food supplier, no contact with people, and leave it outside of the charity. And it's all um, communicated through the app, so you don't have to talk to anybody in person. Right. Were you surprised that, that this kind of continued on, though, the fact that, as you said, restaurants have continued to do their part and provide meals and do all that? I, I really am. I mean, there's some partners that we started with um, that kind of gave us two, for example, Fresh Slice. They gave us two locations, um, you know, about seven months ago. Now we're picking up from 12 different Fresh Slice locations in Vancouver and feeding tons of kids in the after school program. So it's an amazing fit that we continue to do. Um, there's so many, the park Marriott, they just started cooking meals for, um, for charities out of one call. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible to see what these restaurants are doing, um, to help in a time when they're kind of, you know, not in the best situations themselves. So, okay, Tristan, one more time, where can people find out more information? How can we help? Absolutely. Um, if you just either go onto our website, www.vancouverfoodrunners.com or you download the app and start to clean your food rescues today. <laughs> I love it. All right. We'll see yeah. what we can do. Tristan, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. You too. That's okay. Tristan Jagger, the founder of Vancouver Food Runners. Uh, so they pick up excess food from a restaurant or any place that is like, I, I, I don't know what to do with all this. And they deliver it to needy organizations to help out people and families who could really use that food. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a major report that has been released this morning by the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University. So why is this report so significant? Well, it evaluates the feasibility of the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, but in light of recent changes to things like Canada's climate plan. Let's find out more about this. Joining us now is the head of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at SFU, Tom Gunton. Tom, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. So why did you feel it was necessary? Because I feel like this project has been examined. Why was this examination different? Well, um, there have been a number of significant changes that have occurred uh, in the last little while, and uh, it's also important to do a comprehensive benefit-cost study of of the investment in the project because it's one of the largest single projects the federal government has ever undertaken. And so what are those changes? Uh, one, as you just mentioned, Simi, the climate change policies in Canada have been strengthened, uh, reinforced by the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and this is reducing the demand for oil. The world is moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, and oil companies are shifting out of oil into other sectors. So that's number one. Number two is that alternative projects, uh, pipeline projects, are, are being developed and, and are well along alternatives to Trans Mountain that can meet all the needs of Alberta's industry without Trans Mountain. The third thing is, of course, the costs of this project have escalated from the $5.4 billion up to you know, $12.6 billion uh, and, and climbing. And the fourth is, of course, the environmental costs, greenhouse gas emission impacts and oil spills. So what we did is we applied federal government benefit cost guidelines, looked at all of these different costs. We also looked at all the potential benefits in terms of jobs and getting oil to market. And we came up with the bottom line estimate that this project overall will result in a net cost to Canada of $11.9 billion. And we did different uh, sensitivities because no one knows for sure uh, what the future holds. And so we looked at higher oil demand and and different factors. uh, And the results of those sensitivities show 
the actual cost could range from uh, minus $3.2 billion to minus $18.5 billion. And we could find no likely scenario in which this project would generate a net benefit to Canada. Right. So we should point out that is the what you're saying is the net cost after benefits are taken into account. Correct. Yeah. Why the huge discrepancy? Well, it's uh, really comprised of, of a number of things, but the, the, the underlying reasons are, number one, that the, the, the demand simply isn't there uh, in terms of oil production to justify building this project. So the project is not needed to, uh, to meet Canadian uh, transportation needs. Uh, other projects are, pipeline projects are capable of doing that. So it's a bit like building, you know, digging a hole and building it back in. It's simply not necessary. The second thing is, of course, the environmental costs associated with this project, uh, which are going to be incurred, uh, and we added those environmental costs in as well. And the third thing is that the, the tolls on this project, the, the third factor, the tolls on this project were set to cover a, a project that would cost $7.4 billion, not $12.6 billion. So the, the toll revenue is simply not sufficient either. So when you add all of this up, uh, the project, as I say, uh, results in a net cost to, to the country. Now, obviously, this is getting a lot of headlines today, too, because that is a huge <clears throat> number there. But given all of that, do you actually see or anticipate anything changing in regard to the project? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question to me. I mean, governments are reluctant to admit making mistakes and changing directions. Uh, we know that. But, you know, Kinder Morgan itself uh, got out of this project for these reasons because it realized it was not an economic proposition. Um, and uh, hopefully the federal government will consider changing directions as well. I mean, they've changed directions on climate change, and here's one of the great ironies is that they're pushing a very good climate change strategy to reduce the demand for oil at the same time that they are building an oil project, pipeline project that's not needed. Um, so uh, hopefully they'll, they'll take a look at the numbers and the way the world has changed. They'll take a look at what the private sector oil companies are doing. They're getting out of oil. Uh, and they should uh, take a look at that and say, hey, we could probably spend this money a lot wiser doing different things with it, the same as the oil industry is doing. So let's put it into green energy. Let's put it into rehabilitating the, uh, the abandoned oil wells in Alberta. Let's put it into housing. Let's put it into health care whatever, uh, there are much more productive uses of those funds than uh, continuing to build uh, this pipeline that's not needed. Now, governments in the end, though, are political creatures, right, Tom? So don't you also need to convince then a couple of provinces, because the federal government in the end is trying to support a couple of those provinces by going ahead with this? Yes, and that's, of course, a very good point as well. So you'd go to Alberta and Saskatchewan, you say, Look, uh, we can spend uh, $12.6 billion building this pipeline uh, that's not really needed, or we could spend that money uh, re- reinvesting in, in economic recovery in your provinces by doing things such as uh, uh, creating hydrogen, wind energy, uh, rehabilitating uh, abandoned oil wells, uh, whatever is on your list of things to, for sustainable economic recovery. Let's invest that money to help those economies that are worse off. I mean, oil is going to continue to remain a large part of the Canadian economy. It's an important sector, uh, but building a pipeline and spending $12.6 billion on a project that's not needed doesn't really do anyone any good. Tom, thanks for your time on that this morning. 
Okay, thanks very much, Simi. That's Tom Gunton, head of the Resource and Environmental Planning Program at Simon Fraser University, talking about their report out this morning, and it certainly is generating a lot of headlines across the country where they looked at the net value, so the net benefit to Canada with the purchase and the going ahead of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and essentially they say it leads to an $11.9 billion loss. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been hearing and talking about, there's been an overwhelming response to the news that the AstraZeneca vaccine will be distributed to pharmacies in the Lower Mainland and to people between the ages of 55 to 65. Such overwhelming demand that London Drugs already has all their appointments booked up and it wasn't even supposed to start until today. So let's talk about that. What happened? Joining us is Chris Chu, London Drugs General Manager of Pharmacy. Chris, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. How did all these appointments get booked up so quickly before it was all supposed to happen? Well, the government made the announcement yesterday, just like you indicated, um, that we were supposed to actually start on March 31st. Um, Unfortunately, the news came out really quickly and kind of caught our stores off guard. But we took the names of eligible patients is what we ended up doing. And the amount of people that we actually ended up taking eligible names for um, is going to exceed the amount that we will initially get. Um, but we're not the only pharmacy that's um, involved in this vaccination process. There are 150 pharmacies throughout the lower mainland that will be actually involved. So um, everybody will actually, if they can call the various pharmacies that's listed on the website, um, I'm sure that uh, they'll be able to get on. And if they don't get on in this first wave, um, the next few thousands of doses, in fact, um, the BC government is actually announcing that there's uh, more coming next week. And as more keeps on coming, we'll make sure that we do get through the, the list of people that we currently do have. Okay, so I guess what happened then is it wasn't necessarily an appointment that they booked, but they got you've got so many people on the kind of reservation list. Yeah, you know, it was just a phenomenal um, the phone calls. As soon as the announcement was made on the news, all that happened was actually that uh, people just started calling and our staff didn't, couldn't do anything, right? Because they were um, being told and demanded by the customers. It's like, oh, we, we want our name down. We want your phone number. Please can give me a call. And everybody's so excited to get this, which is great. Um, I think that's fantastic in terms of the interest of AstraZeneca to be able to get injected and that people want to try to prevent um, the spread of the virus. So this is actually in, in terms of um, the positive from it is that um, people are willing to um, go ahead with this vaccine which is good. Okay, so how many London Drugs locations will be involved in this? Um, currently, uh, like I said, there's 150 pharmacies throughout. Um, London Drugs actually has three locations that were picked, um, and they were picked in according to the government um, from a random selection of various areas throughout the lower mainland, but London Drugs in particular has three out of the 150 that have been picked. Okay, so then Chris, what do people need to know then? Are there requirements? What do they have to bring? What does getting one of these shots actually involve? So when they actually do come in for the appointment, um, it is actually a set appointment. Please do not show up um, trying to walk in to, to get the shot. Uh, what you should do is actually, once your appointment date and time is confirmed, come a few minutes, about five minutes before your appointment, um, just so there's not crowding within the pharmacies. Come in five minutes before your appointment. We'll check you in. We'll get you actually vaccinated. And then you'll have to stay about uh, 15 minutes after for post-injection monitoring. What you should bring is actually definitely your personal health care number. Make sure you do wear a mask and make sure you are well that day when you do come in as well, too. And then uh, wear a loose-fitting uh, clothing so that we can actually inject um, your, your arm at the same time as well, too. Okay, so when do you anticipate these appointments to actually start? 
Um, we actually st- will start confirming everything today, and then we'll be injecting within the next 48 hours after that. So um, everything should be done with our first wave of doses coming in uh, by Friday. Okay, so you do, though, just to confirm, expect more doses, what, in the days ahead? Um, yeah, we'll get more information in the days ahead, um, but there should be actually another um, distribution of uh, 300,000 doses, actually, to the whole province, um, hopefully in the coming days ahead in terms of the next week. Um, once we start getting more information from the government, uh, we'll, again, we'll, we'll make that available to the public right away. Right. And have you now kind of told people at the pharmacies, like, there, will there be more name writing down or should people wait until you have a system up and running? Uh, I would encourage your, your listeners to wait till the um, system's up and running because actually the website is actually the best place to book is where it is. But again, um, uh, just because of the fact that our phone lines, just like what happened actually with um, when initially the government announced that they were going to start vaccinating, they were inundated with, with phone calls and, and um, their website was actually um, inundated as well too. Um, just be patient. Uh, as soon as it's up and running, um, we'll, we'll let everybody know and they can book online. Uh, but for those who have um, difficulty accessing the internet, we'll accept phone calls at that point as well too. But for now, um, our stores are actually um, have a, a list and we'll make sure that uh, we go through that list. But as well too, when it comes time to book, we'll let everybody know when our website is open as well too. Okay, so for now then, you're not taking any more appointments by phone? Uh, that's correct. We're, we've got actually the wait list right now of people and we'll, we'll call those individuals. Um, as we get more, uh, like I said, um, once the government actually has confirmed that we will get more, we will actually open it up again, which I'm sure will be in the in the days to come. All right, Chris. Sounds like you're busy these days. Thanks so much for yeah. your time. <laughs> okay, thanks for having me. Have a great day. That is Chris Chu, the London Drugs General Manager of Pharmacy, explaining what happened yesterday, because there's a lot of questions about that. Like, how the heck did London Drugs get overwhelming demand and everybody got an appointment and technically you weren't supposed to be able to book until today? Well, he just explained it there they got caught off guard and the local pharmacies were overwhelmed. So they took some people's names and numbers and there were so many people whose names and numbers that they took that has now kind of filled up any available amounts of vaccine that just those three particular London drugs pharmacies were going to get. Chris made an excellent point there. There are 150 pharmacies in the lower mainland that will have this available. This is three. So do not be discouraged. There will be others. This is Mornings with Simi. Can't even begin to tell you how many questions and emails that I have been getting and responding to this morning, all with questions about this AstraZeneca vaccine available for people between 55 and 65 at a pharmacy. We heard what happened at London Drugs earlier, but you know what? There's a lot of other pharmacies where this is going to be available. So let's talk about that now with the help of Annette Robinson, who is the president of the BC Pharmacy Association. Annette, thank you for being here. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Well, we need to get a lot of information out there, Annette. So is this going to be like up to the individual pharmacy? Like, Where can people find out which pharmacies are on the list? Well, we have a list of selected pharmacies. And these pharmacies were selected based on ministry criteria. And um, they are, the list is available on our BCPHA website at bcpha.ca. And uh, they are pharmacies that are in the lower mainland, Fraser Health and the coastal health regions. And we know that they'll be able to deliver these vaccines quickly and efficiently. And uh, hopefully in the next few weeks, other pharmacies throughout BC will be joining So I would suggest that you go to the BCPHA website, select the pharmacy of your choice, 
There's over 100 listed there. Not all pharmacies in BC are involved at this point. Then go to the individual pharmacies website and they will explain there how to book an appointment. Okay, this, this sounds like it has been in the works for a long time. What, what kind of process was this? Well, BCPHA has had ongoing talks weekly, daily with the Ministry of Public Health for quite some time. We knew that at some point we would be involved in um, community pharmacy vaccinating our patients. There uh, was a call out a couple of days ago to to ask if we were able to do it. And of course, uh, pharmacists in BC stepped up and we're willing to do our best to get shots into the arms of our patients. Okay, so is this going to be an ongoing thing or is it just the AstraZeneca shots for now? As far as I know, the AstraZeneca vaccines will be the ones that are available in pharmacies today and over the next little bit. And once we have more AstraZeneca vaccines available from the province, all pharmacies in BC will be included. Okay, so how was it determined which pharmacies would be able to do this? Was it done like geographically or or what was the criteria here? Yes, it was done initially geographically. And again, this is the ministry's criteria. So they had to be located in the lower mainland in the Fraser Health and Coastal Health regions. And they looked at the past 2021 flu vaccination season and looked at the high volume stores and made the decision that those stores would most likely be the ones they wanted to select to uh, start the initial pilot or the initial rollout. Okay, and what would you like people to know about this, Annette? What do pharmacies, what's the message that pharmacies want to get out there? Well, we're here to help. Uh, we, we love hearing from our patients, but please uh, call only the stores that are on the list. The other pharmacies will not have any vaccines at this point. Please go to the websites of the selected pharmacies and find out how they would like you to book their appointments. Okay, so I know there's a lot of people who are frustrated because they feel like they were waiting until today and then it felt like some people had jumped the line. I guess it just demonstrates how enthusiastic people are about getting this. Absolutely, yeah. These pharmacies learned late yesterday and clearly there is a pent-up demand and pharmacists are happy to help. We understand that there'll be more vaccines coming soon. And as soon as we hear, BCPHA and your local pharmacy will be communicating the plan. We'll let you know and um, we'll get you a shot as soon as we possibly can. Okay, and what is that website one more time then where people can find this out? bcpha.ca. I got to tell you, I can't get on it right now, Annette. I think a lot of people are probably trying to do this. Uh, were you anticipating? Yeah, were you anticipating a crush of people? Well, we we thought there would be a lot of interest for sure. However, I don't think anyone was able to anticipate uh, the enthusiastic response we've had to this announcement. All right, so I guess patience is the watchword. Absolutely. All right, Annette. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. You too. That is Annette Robinson, the president of the BC Pharmacy Association. Uh, Yeah, I can't get on the website right now, so patience is going to be the watchword on this. But essentially, 150 pharmacies in the Lower Mainland 
are going to be ready to give this AstraZeneca vaccine. And I just had an email here, and I think I'm just going to answer this question for everybody, where uh, someone had said, asked me, well, wait a minute, like we were, we're exciting to do this. Like, what do we do? We're rule followers. How do we, how do we make this work? Uh, there is some frustration on that. Uh, somebody else asked me about, well, why is it that if I try to book an appointment, if I'm that age group and I can't do it through, you know, Fraser Health or Vancouver Coastal? Let me explain this. So if you want to book through your health region, that is the age-related rollout. For that vaccine, you're going to get Pfizer or Moderna. That is what's, that's what they're using the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for. They have the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they have gotten, and they have determined that if between 55 and 65 is where there are the least amount of these kind of concerns that you have been hearing about, right? So all that different health information that's out there, they said, you know what, 55 to 65 looks pretty good. So they've made that available completely voluntarily to people because they have this AstraZeneca supply that is going to expire. So they said, listen, we'll make this available. If people want to take it, their choice, all you have to do is call. Turns out a lot of people want to take this, and I'm not surprised by that. So you will need a little bit of patience if you're between the ages of 55 and 65 trying to book this. I'm getting a ton of emails on it, so I feel like I am repeating myself a bit, but clearly a lot of people need to get this information. Check your local pharmacy. They may not be on the list. They may be on the list, and then you'll be able to book online and figure out what is going on.